Hey all, welcome back. Thanks for joining us again for Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Today we're going to talk about Palm Sunday, which is this upcoming Sunday. Also, coming up is Holy Thursday when Jesus instituted the Eucharist, so we'll talk about that too. And then we'll answer some of your questions. First, our show is brought to you by the Knights of Columbus Museum. Although you can't tour the museum during this time of health caution, you can always visit on the web. And this week is a beautiful time to take your family online and take a journey together through history, art, and faith. Visit kofcmuseum.org. So th- thanks, I'm Steve Lee, the head of Veritas Catholic Network. I am edified and happy, as always, to be sitting across from His Excellency, Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, we made it to Holy Week, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow. <laughs> this, this Sunday is Palm Sunday, mm-hmm. and um, I would love... I love when you tell stories. So mm-hmm. I would love if you could start with just some stories about Palm Holy Sunday Week for you. Growing up? Yes. Oh, yeah. Holy Week was, since as far back as I can remember, a week that was set aside by the customs and rituals we had in our family. In a way, no other week. Not even Christmas. So, for example, it's Easter, there is no greater feast right? It's the festival of festivals. But the truth is, growing up, our dinner at Palm Sunday was always bigger and more festive. I think in part because it was in some way intuiting entrance into the week, similar to what we hear in the gospel, that we're entering into a week of quiet and penance. And so similar to a a Mardi Gras, Palm Sunday is that Mardi Gras, entering into what's going to be a day of, of leading to a day of tremendous silence and quiet, which was Good Friday. So I loved Palm Sunday growing up. We ate as if it was going out of style. And my mother taught me how to make those palm crosses and she made them all different designs. As a little kid, I was fascinated how you get this long palm and make it into something so beautiful. And I would try, of course, in church to do it when I always get yelled at, but I mean, <laughs> we would do it there. <clears throat> and... My mother would tell stories of Palm Sunday, bringing those palms to the graves of of your relatives, parents, and those who had died. Because we were all entering into the week together, the living and the dead, for what happens on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So growing up in my imagination, in my religious understanding, Palm Sunday ended what was considered even ordinary for Lent there was something very different going on. Mm -hmm. So we would go into Holy Thursday and Good Friday. Holy Thursday, of course, in the Triduum begins at night. Lent ends with sunset on Holy Thursday. So we would always go on Holy Thursday as a family to the Mass of the Lord's Supper. And growing up in Brooklyn, we could walk to the seven churches, which is what we did. And as a little boy, it was one heck of a walk to get to seven churches. I mean, Brooklyn's the city of churches, but they were not that close. (laughs) And yet to see the beautiful altars of repose, to see the crowds of people there, it just left a deep impression on me. And when we got back, then we entered into the Holy of Holies because we were not permitted to watch television. Right, 
It was meant to be a quiet time. Mom did not wash clothes. She did not sweep the floors. It was a time of quiet and reflection. And we would always go Good Friday in the morning to visit the church that had been stripped of everything. Doors wide open, no blessed sacrament. It was jarring for me to see that. Quite frankly, as a little boy, I often asked to stay behind just to watch the initial stripping of the altar because it, it just captivated me to see the emptying, to see the stripping. We talk about Jesus being stripped. You see it with your own eyes. And that's where religious symbol and the affective dimension of faith comes in because the quiet and the silence, uh, the starkness speaks to us without words. So we would go and my mother would pray and I would basically sit there and just consider how different everything was. And then of course Easter, dressed up, coming to church, seeing, it, it, the only way I could describe it is the very tenor of life shifted from the vigil to the next day. So I still carry that all these years later. All the years I have been in ministry, unless there was an emergency or sacramental celebrations, I do no ministerial work Holy Thursday, um, Holy Week, including Holy Thursday. So I have no appointments, no meetings, there's nothing. All the years I have a bishop, there's nothing. There's only the sacramental celebrations and time for prayer because we need to separate this week out. This is the week that has saved us. This is the week where the rocks themselves that form the earth split because of the great gift of salvation. This is the week that the Lord cried out and, and the one who brought sin and death into the world was conquered. You do have to understand that everything ordinary ends. And this is the Lord's time. And we have to carve that time for him. And even though we will not be able to do that in our churches, we can still do it with him in our homes. So that's the memory I have. And it is one of the great gifts my parents gave me, particularly my mother. Yeah, I mean, um, as you're talking, I, I remember as a kid always going into the church on Good Friday and seeing that empty tabernacle. And even when I was too young to understand that the Eucharist was really the body and blood of, of God, but it was something so sad about that right. always struck me. Right, right. And of course, when I was a boy, um, all the statues were covered. Yes. So there was a starkness that is very hard to, to, to describe in words, but it struck you deeply. There was an emptying, there was a kenosis of the church. Well, that's what we, that's what happens on Good Friday. It's the kenosis of Christ. It's the emptying freely of his life for us. That's remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> it's utterly remarkable. Yeah. And then the feeling on Easter Sunday of finally being able to sing Alleluia. Yeah. I can say that out of context, right? <laughs> yes, yes. So that's right. Confession. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. And, and, and 
the, the triumphalism that is rightfully his, not ours, is his. Yeah. yeah, of course it's triumphant time. And we're going to sing to the high heavens. He is the master and savior. He's the victor over sin and death. <laughs> there is no greater reality, period. Let's let's take a step back. I want to because I, I want to talk about um, Palm Sunday a little mm -hmm. bit more. And you know, whenever I nowadays, whenever I think of or talk about Holy Week, including Palm Sunday, my mind is filled with visions from Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. Oh my goodness gracious! I mean, but he also showed Jesus's triumphant entry into Jerusalem, yes. right? Fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy. Yes, and all the people are there. And they're singing Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed yes. he who comes in the yes. name of the Lord. Yes. <laughs> yes. What, what happened to those people by the end of the week? Where mm. were they? Oh, that's an excellent question. From the scriptures, in order to understand, I think, the dynamic that happened in Jerusalem, there are two pieces to this puzzle we need to remember. The first is Jesus's lament over Jerusalem. For Jesus had full knowledge that his entry into Jerusalem was his free self-acceptance of passion and death. And he cried over Jerusalem, for they would not be able to see that which the true triumph of the king of all things was offering on the back of a donkey. The second piece to this puzzle is the gospel narrates how the crowd had become more adversarial and the authorities were becoming more adversarial because the miracles of Jesus are signs of the kingdom in his midst, but the teaching of the kingdom became more direct and more demanding and clearer as to what he was asking. And more and more people said, I don't think so. So to love my neighbor and you tell me my neighbor is the Samaritan, I'm not too sure I can believe that. Or you tell me that I need to forgive not seven times, but 77 times. I'm not sure I'm ready to do that. That may just be a little hyperbole. That's kind of like wishful thinking. No, but you really mean it. I'm not sure I could follow along. So Jesus, always being true to himself, revealing himself more and more in a way people can understand, turned more and more people against him because he was asking for everything. He was asking for total conversion of life. So what happens on Palm Sunday? Palm Sunday he enters and to him is given the great tribute that Caesar would have received if Caesar had entered into Jerusalem or his surrogate. That is, he who claimed to be the ultimate ruler of all things, would have been given the welcome where palm branches would have been laid so that even the feet of his donkey would not touch the ground. Because they were expecting their victory, their triumph over Caesar. And of course, that was not his intent. He came to give the victory of love, mm -hmm. not a military victory. So, J Jerusalem at the time of Jesus was a city of great ferment. For you had the zealots, and you had the scribes, and the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, right? And 
there was so much religious unrest that perhaps in this moment, knowing the prophecy, they were welcoming a Messiah that many thought would change the condition of their life dramatically, instantaneously, triumphantly, by the world standards. And after a few days, they realized, nope, this was not going to be our way. And if it's not our way, then I don't care what way it is. Right. Sound familiar? Yeah, it sure does. <laughs> and, and the rest we know. Jesus was the victim of capital punishment, an innocent man being put to death by the state. Because the state could not risk the unrest that would come and threaten their occupancy of the Holy Land. In this case, Jerusalem. So you say he, he had full knowledge of this as he's entering in, the way Caesar would enter in. I always pictured that there was a, uh, a part of him also that kind of um, enjoyed it. But is that, is that the wrong way to, I mean, you know, uh, on a human level, he's being accepted and celebrated. And not that God needs that. Maybe I'm looking at it the wrong way. Yeah, I think it would be much, I, I imagine this to be much more of a somber acceptance okay. of the misunderstanding for the best of his human ability, being fully God and fully man, to the best of his ability, he could not get them beyond their stubbornness of heart. Yeah. But he knew he had to enter Jerusalem because he knew his death and his death alone freely offered was the great way and only way to conquer sin and death, particularly death from the inside out. Hmm. So he entered. So I picture Jesus with a much more somber resignation that he was to do this even though in the end he knew they would all walk away except for the few. Right. But he was prepared to even pay that price. Right. And so as he's entering and everyone's celebrating, it's even more pronounced to him because he knows what's coming. He says, they just, they still don't get it. Father, forgive them, yep. for they know not what they do, even on Palm Sunday. Yeah, yeah. Right? Right. Now, let's get a little spiritual for a moment, shall we? So how many times do we choose the palm over the Lord? How many times do you and I and our listeners, anybody for that matter, Choose the palm, the ways of the world, the ways of power, the way of submission, the way of the military might, right? Then what the Lord who's sitting on the donkey is telling us. Mm. Yeah. So Palm Sunday itself is a moment of self-reflection. Do you think it's a mistake then that we all, all of us, priests, deacons, religious, and faithful, we all cry Crucify him in the passion. Yeah. Why? Why? Because in the end, we have all, in our own lives, we all still make the same sinful mistake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we are the angry. It's, I love this story of David when, uh, after he had Uriah killed and he mm -hmm. took, takes Bathsheba and then Nathan comes to him and tells him that story. You know, there's this rich man who has tons of animals, and then when he wants, when it's time for him to eat, he takes the one sheep that this poor neighbor owns, 
and kills it and eats that. And David is so outraged. He says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan goes, yeah, well, um, that's you. <laughs> and so You are the man. Right. And so we look at this crowd, or I do, I look at the crowd and the, re- the readings over Holy Week and I say, I can't believe these people. But it's, it's us, isn't it? Correct. Like you're saying. Correct. Doesn't Pontius Pilate say the same thing? Paraphrasing. Mm-hmm. This is the man. Mm-hmm. Who do you choose? You couldn't make it any clearer. You, this one, or Barabbas? And what does the crowd choose? Barabbas. Why? Because he symbolizes, not he personally alone, but he symbolizes the, the choice they made by welcoming him by the standards of the world. Right? And we are also guilty of that at times in our own personal lives. Again, we should not throw stones at the crowd. We should look ourselves in the mirror and say, when have I fallen into that? Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. How, um, how culpable was Pontius Pilate? Oh, see now, Pontius Pilate. The most poignant question asked in all of sacred scripture, in my humble opinion, comes out of the mouth of Pontius Pilate when he is standing before Jesus and he says, what is the truth? And of course, the truth is not a what, it's a who. Hmm. Right. So it was pathetic in some sense for the answer was standing in front of him. I have in my own religious way of understanding Pontius Pilate, I have somewhat of a sympathetic bent in part because he was a maverick in a larger political structure that chances are was the only thing he was taught in his life to maneuver his way to perhaps a higher station in the military. He knew the rules and played by the rules. And that's why he had to get rid of the dissension, this Jesus. He was not a believer, nor was he Jewish. So he was essentially a pagan. And I asked myself, well, what tools that it was he given to be able to make the right choice? What, what formation did he have to be able, in the moment of this great truth, to be able, this great decision, to be able to even lean back, to, be, to find even a compass? I mean, sure, he knew about Jesus. I'm not sure he ever effectively encountered Jesus in his ministry and his teaching. So it could have been a moment. So all of those questions I do not know. So the word that comes to mind for Pontius Pilate is not meant to be derogatory. It's meant to be more effective. He is a pathetic figure in the scriptures. And that's to the mercy of God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's, uh, in Pilate, there's um, a reflection of us as well. And a reflection of institutional society in general. Mm -hmm. See, Pontius Pilate was stuck in some sense between the rock and the the hard place. Because he needed on one hand to maintain stability, because that was his mandate. On the other hand, he needed to appease those leaders who would help him to keep stability. Right. Right. So even if Pontius Pilate, 
as we hear in scriptures, had qualms and would have let Jesus free. He was, he was stuck between these two rocks. So in the end, he represents for me institutional society that creates a set of expectations, regulations, and parameters for its proper running. And when someone comes along who challenges that, the immediate reaction is get rid of him hmm. or her. And we've seen it all throughout history. It doesn't necessarily use that moment to say, well, what is it this person is telling us that could actually make our life better, more authentic, more free? So he was the symbol of the state that was going to stamp out anything that would have created unrest. Because the ultimate goal was to keep these people in subjection to Rome for the money, the trade, and all the rest that came with it. Yeah. So does that happen nowadays? Yeah, I was just going to say, good <laughs> thing that doesn't ha occur now. <laughs> right. Doesn't that happen yeah. in our own age and time? It sure does. Right. So once again, we are reliving the Gospels. Mm -hmm. And what lessons have we learned? It's amazing. Mm -hmm. And Next week, we'll talk more about the Triduum and Easter. But since we're talking about culpability, I, I would like to ask you, so uh, the John's Gospel on Monday after Palm Sunday says that Jesus, Judas was a thief who used to steal from the disciples, mm -hmm. the apostles' money bag. Mm -hmm. And then the next uh, day's Gospel uh, talks about how Satan entered Judas when he took the morsel. Mm -hmm. There are some folks who say... Judas is more of a, not sympathetic, but he was, um, he just didn't realize what he was doing, you know, and that he shouldn't be held so uh, responsible. And uh, how, how okay. are we supposed to look at him? Now, we are in a great mystery as to the fate, the eternal fate of Judas, for which I do not know the answer. Certainly he committed suicide mm -hmm. when he recognized the grave sin that he committed. Only God knows ultimately what happened to him and whether or not he went to hell or whether or not there was some, some modicum, some moment, some grace, some crack that allowed even the mercy of Christ to, to bring him to some conversion. We don't know that. But this is what haunts me about Judas. Judas was chosen because he was a religious figure that he did want, in fact, to follow. I don't believe he was chosen simply to be an instrument of evil. No, the Lord would not work that way. So there was a genuine initial goodness there and openness there and desire there. But this is what haunts me. He walked with Jesus for three years. Yes. In a way that we would give our left arm to do. That's right. And yet, as close as he was physically, he never encountered the Lord. It's like water that rubs off of you, that just flows over you, his teachings, his miracles. So what was it that allowed him to be deaf to the words and blind to the actions 
and cold of heart to the expressions of compassion and mercy and forgiveness and love that Jesus was offering to him personally, literally personally. And again, I don't know the answer to that question. We could speculate. If I had to say anything, he probably was guilty of something that many of us are guilty of in some way, shape or form, that we do not honestly believe that we can be loved just the way we are. Hmm. That it's gotta be for everybody else and not me, but that's only speculation. But that it did not, it did not, that encounter did not happen in my sense is almost clear because of what transpired in Holy Week. So how often do we fall into everything that is about Christ surrounds us, but we're not making the encounter and connection? That has caused me a tremendous amount of reflection over my life because I personally am all about the things of religion and the things of Jesus. And then I say to myself, well, are they just the apparatus of my life or are they the substance of my life? For Judas, it was all around him, but not it didn't penetrate in him. And sometimes we can find ourselves in that position, but there's hope. See, our response is not despair. Our response is, please God, is not to take our lives. Our response is to go to the cross and say, okay, let me start again. Will you allow me to start again? Yes, I will. So I love you. That's mm -hmm. why I did this for you. Of course mm -hmm. I will. I'll walk with you. So that's why Judas is not a sympathetic figure, but again, he's in my mind a pathetic figure in a different way than Pontius Pilate. Yeah. And uh... and the other apostles who perhaps did have the encounter. Peter certainly did. He had flashes of grace admissions of who he was, that was from above, and the Lord even says it. And when push came to shove, except for John, they all ran too. Yeah. Peter betrayed him to his face. <laughs> so if we're gonna keep going, so when have we done that? Right to his face betrayed him. Yeah, R immediately after Jesus instituted the Eucharist. A amen. Right after that, they go to the garden and they all take off. Exactly, because fear, fear, is a great poison. And we're living in a very fearful time. But fear is a great poison because there is in some way, shape or form an inability for us to surrender to the unknown. And when we surrender to the unknown, one of two things will happen. We'll either fall on our face or fall into the hands of Jesus. Hmm. Which, where do you wanna land? Yeah. <laughs> I choose Jesus. Amen. We need to take a break, Excellency. So let's take a break. On the other side of the break, we'll come back and we'll talk about the Eucharist. Thank you. Catholic Radio works, and now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened. Parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Hey, all welcome back to Let Me Be Frank. Uh, so happy and always edified to be here with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Thank you, Steve. 
So we're, we're talking about the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the source and summit of Christian life. Mm-hmm. It is really and truly the body and blood of Christ. And so it's really and truly God. Mm-hmm. We could talk all day about the apologetics, starting with John 6 and going to 1 Corinthians and on and on. But if it's okay with you, I'd like to approach it from a different angle because we get a lot of apologetics on the air with, with regards to a lot of things with Catholic teaching. So I'd like to talk to you about the Eucharist in the Mass. Mm-hmm. And the events of the Passion directly correspond to elements of the Mass. And I wonder if you could just walk us through some of that. The Eucharist is our great gift to participate in an unbloody way in the one sacrifice of Christ that has redeemed all creation. Let's think about that for a second. There is only one death, but by grace, we can enter into that death and not have to pay the price he paid so that we can rise as a gratuitous gift. So the Eucharist is the action in the celebration of Mass, as well as the gift, which is that which we receive and is reserved, which is permanently the presence of the Lord in the world, as long as it exists. And so we receive body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. So we're receiving the divinity. Now let's think about that for a second. We are receiving the the very divine life of God. A couple of things to consider. Why does Jesus give us the gift in the first place when he could just simply give us the grace? When I went to the upper room, I was sorely disappointed because it was a tourist attraction. People taking selfies. I'm thinking to myself, you people, do you have any idea where you're in Hmm. or what room you're in? And yet in that room, in its quiet, Jesus gives us the sacrament that unites us with his death, and he asks us to eat and drink. Why? 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 Well, it is all about yours and mine, salvation, salvation, salvation. Because we have to literally eat it, reminds us that even this body was saved on the cross, not just our soul and spirit. And that it's involved in the very life of God. Hmm. So in a world where we can talk about how the body is misused and abused and mistreated and mutilated, there's a fundamental disconnect with what we're talking about here in the Eucharist because there's a fourfold action in the act of the Eucharist to take, bless, break, and offer. If you consider the Mass, that's exactly what happens in the Liturgy of the Eucharist. So the gifts are taken, they're received, oftentimes by the people, but they're they're offered. So it is offered, taken, Mm -hmm. it's blessed in the act of consecration with the epiclesis and the coming of the Holy Spirit. What appears to be bread and wine is no longer bread and wine. Even though its accidents remain that, that looks like it, it is substantially not. It is transubstantiated. It is changed, as you said. 
And then it's broken at the Lamb of God. That's why the act is not done privately and it's shown to the people because Christ's body was broken on the cross and the Eucharist is broken before us and we must be broken in our discipleship because there's a mirroring of Christian life in these four and then it is received so that we can go forth. And so for us, when we go to the Eucharist, we need to remember that we are meant to become what we receive. We receive the body of Christ, Augustine said, to become the body of Christ, first as the church and then as individuals. So we're taken from among men and women. We are blessed and consecrated in baptism, confirmation, and the reception of the Eucharist. We are blessed. We are broken in discipleship because it's all about self-sacrifice, and then we're sent out into the world. We receive the Christ, the Lord, and we're sent out into the world to be his presence in the world. So what we celebrate at Mass is our life in microcosm, but it is Christ's life in these days that are coming up in Holy Week. So when we approach the Eucharist, we need to, St. Paul wrote, you know, we need to discern the body. We need to prepare ourselves in a certain way. How should we dispose ourselves? How should we approach the Eucharist? How should we prepare ourselves before we even get there? These are, that's a great question. So let's start with the act of receiving. There are two ways to receive. On the tongue, which is, was the traditional way for, for centuries, and now one can receive in the hand. I would challenge all our listeners to make sure that we receive correctly. That in the hand is creating a throne for the coming of the king. And in our tongue, we do it in such a way that we can welcome him also in a dignified way. And the person who's giving you communion doesn't have to fight mm -hmm. to put the, the host in your mouth. Nor in the hand, do you grab it or it's non it's nonchalant. No. But this is what I want us to consider. Whether you choose to receive on the tongue or in the hand, is it a worthy place? We talked about gossip last week. How did you use your tongue in any sinful way? But then it is not a worthy place. It needs to be purified. And your hands, what by acts of omission and commission has they been used in sinful ways? They are not a worthy place to receive the Lord. They need to be purified. So it is the proper way to receive, but also the proper disposition of the way you receive that begins that worthy reception. But to your point, Steve, how have you prepared beforehand to receive? You know, priests particularly can fall into this because oftentimes priests celebrate multiple liturgies on Sunday, multiple masses. And it's very hard always to recollect correctly at each of them, hmm. simply because there's a human element there, there's a tiredness there, there's a distraction there. Right. But all the more reason we need to recollect because there's nothing more important to do. So have we, you and I, spent the time to prepare ourselves, even before we got to church? When we arrived at church, presumably sometime early, throughout the Mass, to avoid the distractions and focus our minds and hearts on what's going to happen, receive in a correct and worthy way, in a spirit that has been cleansed 
from sin to the extent that that is possible before mass, in addition to the penitential rite, so that there can be this encounter. We talked about Judas. This is the encounter yes. that we're gonna receive every time we go to mass. I go to, I go to a church where everyone receives on the tongue, on the knees, and because it's an outward sign of reverence, mm-hmm. but there is a way that you can, it's, it's all about the interior heart, as you're saying. How do you receive him with your heart and then encounter? Because you could be on your knees and still not there. Correct. Correct. You know, it's interesting. I've changed my practice for confirmation this past year. Because prior, for all the years I confirmed, I confirmed standing and the confirmandi was standing. This year it's changed. So now I am sitting and all the confirmandi kneel before me. Not because this is an act of authority, but because quite frankly, when you have to stop and kneel, and we are eyeball to eyeball, there is, in my experience, much more of a recollection and recognition of what's about to happen. So almost like you pause to say, this is the moment. So there is some logic to predispose oneself whether one is kneeling or standing, to be able to stop, recollect, and it's the obligation of the person giving you Holy Communion to proclaim the body of Christ and to wait for your response and then give it so that that moment is not lost because you could recollect all the way to that moment and then it could be lost if you're daydreaming or it becomes mechanical or automatic or whatever it else it yes. may be. It's not, a, it's not an assembly line. It's, a, it's an encounter each time someone steps forward. Right, Yeah. right, exactly. So there's a responsibility on both ends, on the communicant and the, the person who's giving communion to allow that to happen. And so these days we can't make it to mass but there's this uh, there's uh, spiritual communion that we yes. have. So how do we properly do that? Right. Well, spiritual communion is always available to all of us when we cannot attend Mass. So many of our listeners, with, because of family and work obligations, cannot go to Mass every day, even when we could. And please, God, we'll be back to that shortly. But they can do spiritual communion with the Lord. That is, to unite one's mind and heart to the celebration of the Eucharist wherever it is being celebrated, which is always, always, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, somewhere on earth, Mm -hmm. the Eucharist is being offered. Mm -hmm. So it's being offered perpetually. To offer our minds, wherever that may be, and to ask for the grace of the Lord to come to us, even absent the gift of his body and blood, but to enter into our hearts and give us the spiritual fruits to make us aware of the encounter we can have with him to deepen that relationship we have with him. So we don't have to be watching mass on TV, for example. We can do that when we're by ourselves taking a walk, for example. You may. It is, it is certainly much more advantageous and intentional when you are watching mass okay. because you're uniting yourself to the fourfold act. Mm-hmm. And even though you cannot receive the Eucharist tangibly, you're receiving the Eucharist in your heart spiritually. 
So I would strongly recommend to everyone who's listening to, to in fact, go online if you cannot go to mass or go on television in certain places of the country where it's being televised so that you are, be, you are more disposed entering into the ritual that you are participating in from afar, you are more disposed for this encounter to happen. And then when we're there, so let's say we're listening because the mass is broadcast every day at 8 a.m. on Veritas. Let's say we're listening. Is there, what are the words that we should say uh, when we want to make that spiritual communion? Well, there are formal prayers. There are formal acts of spiritual communion that one could even go online and find in some okay. of our prayer books. Uh, I personally would use my own words. Okay. And w so what are we, we're asking for? For welcome. First to welcome him and to thank him for coming, to recognize he's already there, to be conscious of the gift that I cannot receive personally, but I can receive in spirit. And to give thanks for the gifts of the Eucharist for the times I did receive it. Because its effect is still there. It doesn't wear off. <laughs> That's why the great saints re receive very infrequently. Because the effect stays forever in mm. us. If we cooperate with it. If we allow that grace to grow. So I would say welcome, recognition, thanksgiving, and communion with the Lord. Can we, I'd like to talk about adoration. Mm-hmm. So there's, I love this story um, Fulton Sheen told of when the communists took over China and there was a church where the soldiers broke in, they, uh, through the priest, they locked him in his rectory. From his rectory window, he could look out into the church and the soldiers destroyed the inside of the church. They opened up the tabernacle, they took out the ciborium, they, they threw the, the Eucharist all over the floor. The, pre, the pastor knew that there were 32 pieces of host there. And that night, a young girl snuck into the church. She made a holy hour, and then she got down on her hands and knees and took one host on her tongue and then snuck out. And she came back every night for 32 nights. On the 32nd night, she made her holy hour, and the pastor's watching this from his window. She made her holy hour. She received communion. And then on her way out, she must have bumped into something or she slipped on something. She woke the guard and the guard grabbed her and beat her and killed her. But she hungered mm -hmm. for the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And like I mentioned, you know, Fulton Sheen told that story and he said that for him, the, the adoration is his secret weapon. He draws all his power mm -hmm. from it. So... How can you and the and the priests of our diocese um, encourage the practice of adoration? And then, um, you know, how can we do it more effectively? Well, certainly to to encourage it, we need to consciously make the choice in our parishes to have the Eucharist exposed and available, so that people could come. Much of this, Steve, is developing the right religious habits in our lives. Because we all have habits. I mean, we all kind of do the same thing in the same way, more or less, give or take, when we wake up. Um, and religious habits are the fabric of keeping us on track. So 
when you say encourage, I understand that to mean how do we help people to develop the holy habit of finding time to come and sit before Jesus? Yes. So step number one, Jesus has to be available. I would argue he's always there in the tabernacle, but when he is visible, it makes a tremendous difference, right? That's number one. Then number two is we have to instruct people to spend that time with Jesus. So allow me a caricature. <laughs> I come to Holy Hour, Jesus is there. We acknowledge him and then we read, we said, do this, we do the other thing, I'll pray these prayers, I'll offer this novena. All of this is wonderful, magnificent, but Jesus is in front of you. So you need to spend some time just with Jesus, which is hard to spend 15 minutes in true adoration without doing anything except adoration, mm -hmm. that is adoring, watching the Lord, is a very long time for most people to go through. Since we are always programmed to do something. So A, available, he needs to be, and, and B, I would offer the simple advice that we have to help people gradually grow the time when they surrender to nothing but the silence they have before the Lord. That's when the Lord talks back in yeah. powerful ways. So let's say I'm driving home from work or uh, on my way in, I, I go head out a little early or even on lunch break and I stop in to a church where there, uh, there's exposition, mm -hmm. spend 10 minutes a day in silence. I think one of the, it was one of the St. Teresa's who said, I, I just look at him and he looks at me. Right, tremendous. So then is, should I make it a goal then to get to an hour of just looking at the Blessed, uh, the blessed Sacrament and... The Lord will tell you. Okay. The Lord will tell you what you need. Perhaps yes, perhaps no. But he can't tell you unless you give him some time to talk to you. Yeah. In other words, one of the great temptations we fall into is, and this I fall into all the time because I love to talk. That's why we have this show. <laughs> I love to talk. But we do too much talking. Allow Jesus to talk. And he doesn't talk with words. He talks with feelings. Mm. He talks with images. He talks with silence. He talks with whispers. Mm-hmm. And and so if if we don't have a, a church nearby where there there is exposition in the monstrance, it's good as just as good, but different. I think it's different if you come into a church and there isn't exposition because it's the same Lord, but it, it would be similar to say, I came, I knew you were in this room, I was in the room next door, I know you're there but I would prefer to see you hmm. because there's a deeper level of interaction. Mm -hmm. So if a church were open in the tabernacle, of course, it's tremendous, but I think it's far greater and far more beautiful to be able to come and look upon the Lord, look upon him because he can always look to you. He doesn't need, the, the Eucharist doesn't have to be exposed for the Lord to look deep inside you, the places you don't even know about, <laughs> but we can't do that. Yeah, but like you were saying earlier, I guess there, there's this interior transformation that happens within us from spending time with him. 
He doesn't need it, but we need it. Yeah, in the end, I think, let's go back to Judas. What prevented the encounter, I do not know. But I wonder to myself, if he were less busy about the affairs of the purse hmm. and just relaxed in the Lord's presence, maybe it would have happened more easily. Like what allowed John, what happened in John's life that did not happen in any of the other apostles that allowed him the courage to stay at the foot of the cross? And he is, by tradition, the youngest. Right. So it could very well be that that sense of wonder and awe, that sense of surrender to the present moment, was perhaps a bit easier for John than it was for those who were older and were set in their ways. So my sense is, to your question, you know what? Go where the Lord tells you in the hour. Yeah. But go. Without a doubt. <laughs> Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Exactly. Go. And so before we end this segment... Um, do you remember your first communion? I do, actually. I do. And there's, I have photos that are <laughs> sitting in the, in the old apartment. And first of all, I was I was enormous young boy. I was like, I was chubby. But, <laughs> and chubby's being polite. <laughs> in a blue suit that was kind of tight. <laughs> I look at it and say, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, I don't remember the actual ceremony. I remember walking home from the ceremony and being absolutely mesmerized by the book mm. that I was given for Holy Communion. Did you get a book? I did. Yeah? Yes, the missile. Yeah. Did you get a missile? Yes, yes. and it was hardcover. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was fascinated by that, and all dressed up. Um, so I do, I do. I don't necessarily, I don't remember the ceremony, per se. Yeah. But I'm old now. I, there are a lot of things I don't remember anymore, Steve. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember my ceremony either, but I remember going home... And still being in my jacket and tie, my younger brother too, cutting a cake and thinking, wow, this this deserves a cake. Yeah. It's a big deal. Yeah. yeah and then uh, and then playing priest and mass for the next several months using the missile that I got. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And I still have the missile. I have the missile because my mother kept the missile. Oh, wow. Yeah. When my mother died, it was one of the things I found. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Isn't it? So you know what that reminds me of, by the way, that line in sacred scripture about Our Lady and she cherished all these things in her heart. Yes. So sometimes we forget what our parents treasured about us and what they kept for us, even though we ourselves would have said, ah, oh, what's the difference? I'm, I'm not a kid anymore. Yeah. Is that interesting? Yeah, it's a great point. It's a great point. Let's, uh, let's take one more break and then uh, we'll come back and answer some questions. A lot of people listen to Catholic Radio and get great information to help build their faith and support their faith. But there are also people out there who haven't yet built a relationship with God, and Catholic Radio reaches them wherever they are. It evangelizes in a way like no other medium, and that's just one of the many reasons why Catholic Radio is so important. And we're back on Let Me Be Frank. Um, okay, Excellency, we always have great questions. I picked one out in particular because um, I have nieces and nephews who are young and my kids are, my oldest is 17. And so 
I'm very interested in this. Uh, Chris asks, how do we keep young people like millennials from leaving the church? And I'll, I'll add on to it. Um, how do we get them more engaged? Mm-hmm. So invite them in and engage them once they're in. Separate tasks related. Well, this is the, uh, this is the question of the hour. Bishop Barron has been engaging the bishops on this question, a word on fire. Just about everyone who is there, a Christian apologetic, even in the evangelical churches, are trying to figure out how to do this in an age where established communities are not seen as valuable, particularly with all the baggage that they carry, and in an age where I can seek a spiritual relationship with God without tradition or ritual, and quite frankly, having to deal with you or me or people I don't agree with, don't like, whatever it may be. It's the ultimate conclusion to my life is all about me. Even God has to fit into my world. All right, so diagnosing the issue, how do you address it? St. Mary's Press in its study, Going, Going, Gone, which I recommend everyone listening read, very simple, talks about the, the uh, phenomenon of disaffiliation. That is, a young child born into the faith leaves the faith. And this is the seminal insight. Affiliation, wanting to and engaging in a community is all about establishing a relationship with that community and a relationship with the Lord. Now, look at your human experience. If you establish a relationship with someone, you have done that in part because that person has demonstrated he or she is worth your time and has answered all the questions you had about them satisfactorily when you first met. You fall in love with someone, you got a thousand questions. Those questions get answered and you say, yep, right. yep. Uh, we're free and clear. This person is the real deal. So disaffiliation does the opposite. Questions that do not get answered in a satisfactory way get added one after the other until finally they say, you know what? I, I don't hate you, but I don't get you. I don't understand you. It's too much effort. It's too much. It's too much. So you go figure it out, I'm leaving. Mm -hmm. So it's apathy, indifference, not hostility. So what's the answer to the question? I think number one, it's creating safe spaces where young people can ask their questions and get answers that they may not always be satisfied with, but will provoke other questions in them to lead them to an understanding of what we believe. That's number one. And number two, it's to reestablish the credibility of the community by being an authentic community. They're not gonna, they're not gonna join a community that's stayed in its ways, not interested, not inviting, not engaging in the things, the work of justice and charity and, and trying to make a difference in the larger world. They're not going to do that. But we can be that in our Catholic communities. So establish the relationship by beginning to answer those questions and do that in a way where you are loving them by spending the time with them and establishing communities that, you know what, they're not going to create on their own, but are worth belonging to. I think that's how you engage young people. Yeah, I agree. The young people aren't necessarily coming to the church. We need to go out to where they are on their phones and... Uh, on the radio, for example. And they are, re they are rejecting a caricature of the church. 
Yes. And that caricature is these communities are not gonna make a difference. They're not gonna accept me. And quite frankly, before I get there, why are these things so? These questions. Well, you do both of those, I think they will come. Yeah. And they'll stay and they'll be engaged and they'll invest. Amen. Be sure to send your questions in for Bishop Frank via social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. That does it for another week. Great, Steve. It's always great to be with you. Great to be with you. Uh, thanks to our sponsor, the Knights of Columbus Museum in New Haven. Listeners who are looking for some quality Catholic content on the web or social media, type KOFC Museum and give it a like or follow. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. So edifying to be with you every week, Your Excellency. Now, Steve, for ending today, why don't you offer the prayer? Lord, thank you so much for the time to hear your words through Bishop Frank Caggiano and continue to bless us and help us see all the blessings that you pour down on us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well said. God bless. God bless, Bishop. <laughs>